Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Mornings with Carmen here on the 10th of December. Of course, it is Mornings without Carmen. Carmen is away today. She'll actually be away for part of next week as well, I believe, through Thursday. So this is Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for today and next week. And so delighted to be with all of you as part of the Faith Radio family, especially coming off of the Share, the Winter Share event this week. I participated in a number of hours with Carmen and others during the day and just so blown away, genuinely, always, by, by the gifts that come in. Uh, but even more importantly, uh, in, the, in the anecdotes and the stories and the texts that come in from all of you, it's so heartening and, and, and reminds me of how unshakable God's kingdom is. With, within all the disruption of this world, hearing your stories about how you're following Jesus and, and the scars of life and, and the triumphs of life, it really is just a place of, of profound encouragement. So thank you again, all of you, for the way you gave and poured out this last week. And of course, delighted to be in studio with Paul Perot, good friend and colleague. Uh, Carmen, yesterday when we were on the show referred to you as her her dear friend. I was just her friend. You're clearly yeah. the dear friend of Mornings Without Carmen here this morning. Well, you know, I we we've since we work together almost every weekday, you, uh, do. you know, it's like we've developed something. I love it. So even even from a distance, because usually she's down in down in Nashville, and I'm up here. And but yeah, yeah, cyber. Oh I, yeah, it was so fun to have her in studio this week it too. Was. She is just so good at these morning show uh, topics and all mm-hmm. the news headlines, and just so fun to be in person with her. And as she's wont to say, we we are swimming around in various parts of the biblical text. It's specifically, as part of this Christmas season, we have been in the Gospel of. Luke. And uh, we are in Luke chapter 10 this morning, which has the parable of the Good Samaritan, which would be really well known. And we'll definitely cover that later this morning. It also has the story of Mary and Martha, which is a really intriguing story. But the gospel of Luke chapter 10 starts with this interesting commission that Jesus gives to his early followers to head out into these towns and these villages, 72 and all. And they're going to now enter into the battle pretty specifically of good and evil. And they go into these villages and they... uh, really engage with with households and people and they're finding even some demonic activity there's a lot going on here as they go out but they're they're early followers and these people Paul, are not the best and the brightest these are the failed fishermen these are the tax collectors these are the people that were sort of the rabble of life and mm-hmm. jesus is like all right time to hit head out into the cosmic eternal battle that's going on and when they go out and they come back they're like wow even the demons obey your name, Jesus. And there's this beautiful passage then that I think is, is quite instructive for all of us as believers. When Jesus says, uh, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden the things of the kingdom from the wise and the learned, and you have revealed them to little children. And this is the nature of the upside down kingdom, right, Paul? Mm-hmm. It, it is. I work with the wise and learned week in and week out in academia. And there's a lot of lovely people, but within academia, there's also a lot of people that think their own little personal brand and power is what's going to win the day. And it never does within no. God's kingdom. No. And as I was mentioning beforehand, when you were ta- telling me about this, it's like, okay, 
Okay, I've been hanging around Kuiper a lot, Abraham Kuiper's writings, and to kind of use a metaphor of an arm and a cast, um, you know, our world is broken. And and yet in that, there's this organic reality of the church that's healing and such. But there's also a cast, which is holding the arm together. The The cast is not the church. It, right. it, it's the institution of the church, maybe, but the reality is the organic relationships of the people. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and so often the, the people to whom the power of the kingdom is entrusted, regardless of the organizational situation, are, are the people that are not seen as the best and the brightest and those most worthy of it. They don't have the best resumes. Case in point, right here. Case in me. point, right here as well. <laughs> there, but, the, but the grace of God go I. So I think it, as, as you're checking in this morning, getting up, drinking your coffee, off to school, off to work, wherever you're headed, just remember that the kingdom does not come to you because you're the most learned. It often comes because you are the most broken and in need of it, and the power is there available for you. Up next, we'll be joined by Steve West from World Magazine, and we're going to talk about the intersection of religious liberty and some of the policies going on in our country. Welcome again to Mornings Without Carmen. It's Peter Kapsner filling in for today. Ten minutes past the top of the hour here on the 10th of December. Welcome back to Mornings Without Carmen. I'm delighted to be joined by Steve West this morning, who talks about a lot of the issues related to religious liberty for World Magazine. What a wonderful publication that is. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Peter. Great to be with you. I know we've got a lot of different things that we could cover as we look at some of the top news stories from 2021 related to religious liberty. And one of them I think that many of us have been impacted by is the how the Supreme Court has ruled on religious freedom and, and the civil power's ability to either shut down uh, worship or to allow it to persist and continue. What are you seeing in the story? Well, it's an amazing story. And it's one that really started last year, of course, with the pandemic and the exercise of a emergency powers by many of the governors uh, around the country, some more than others. You know, uh, Peter's helpful in looking over in a year with all its ups and downs to remember God's faithfulness and his providence, you know, how he really governs all things for our good. And we would not have said that many of these lockdowns were good, you know, when the churches were not able to meet. But we can see uh, how God used this really, I think, to define sort of the limits of governmental power and the importance of religious liberty. Because you know, this year, you know, we found that out why, you know, the, back in earlier in the year, the Supreme Court struck down California Governor Gavin Newsom's near total ban on indoor worship in California. I mean, you couldn't even meet in a church for a long period of time. And then that followed a case late, late last year where it struck down numerical caps on worship in New York City. And so the dominoes were falling in that case last February involving California, which seems like a very long time ago now was really the nail in the casket. And a conservative majority of the court ruled that California couldn't treat churches differently than other businesses, you know, which at that time were capped at capacity at 25% capacity. It's more than that now, of course. But the court basically said, you can't discriminate against churches. You have to treat them like other places. But it didn't stop there with the courts. You know, Over half the state legislatures have also passed laws that rein in executive powers used by governors and health officials to lock down worship and do other things uh, in the state. So really a preemptive strike against future edicts by these governors. 
who many of whom were trying to do a good thing, but in doing a good thing, they really choke off religious liberty in the state. The latest state was Delaware, which enacted some fairly broad restrictions on such moves by their uh, governor and executive branch just recently. So this is healthy. Not that we wanted a pandemic to help figure this out, Mm. but we now know that government officials will use whatever power they have in a time of real or even manufactured crisis to do things. And that's why we need to check on their powers. That's why the founders were so wise in setting up our system of government the way they did. Mm, Steve, I think one of the things that's helpful to understand, perhaps the motivations that go on for shutting down churches specifically, is that there really is a sense within what would be described as secular uh, liberalism or or secular humanism, the idea that we as human beings, uh, if we're sufficiently empowered, can create the kind of utopia that we all desire. And, And in that, religion is often seen as getting in the way of that. It's seen as sort of backwards and archaic and people clinging to these things. And and so to understand some of those those motivating underpinnings to why they're trying to shut down churches in particular, there there really is a specific attack on on Christian organizations that is different than other organizations. I think that's right, and it forgets you know that unlike a regular business, uh, you know a religious institution, a church, a mosque, whatever it is, uh, are covered by the First Amendment, the very first amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees religious freedom. So it's a little different than other um, other types of businesses out there. Um, if, if there was more success in setting, shutting down some of the Christian organizations in worship, I think one thing that we can remind ourselves is that's not exactly shutting down Christianity, right? I mean, Christendom and Christianity has a long history uh, of worshiping in private and in different kinds of spaces that is maybe hidden from, from governmental intervention. Well, that's correct. That's exactly right. And so there's, yeah, many, many times in history when we've had much more, uh, uh, people have had much more restrictions on their ability to worship than just a, a shutdown of a religious place of worship, you know, an indoor worship, in other words. So, no, they've met in homes. They've met in, of course, in caverns and caves and uh, tunnels, wherever, you know, they can meet in order to do this. And so the church can really thrive under a time of persecution. We have to remember that and not put all of our put all of our efforts into uh, just fighting uh, these things, but remember that it can also be strengthening for the church. We're talking with Steve West from World Magazine about some of the intersection of religious liberty and uh, and how we understand that from a court of law and how it impacts us as believers. Steve, we're going to step away for just a short break. When we come back, let's change the topic to about the court's federal authority related to vaccine mandates and what we're going to see about that moving forward into 2022. always love that version of Silent Night. I don't know what that does. Just maybe the snapping of the fingers kind of wakes me up. And I know it's not exactly a silent version of Silent Night, but I really like that version. It's not. It's actually probably the most, the closest you'll get to an up-tempo version yeah. of Silent Night there is that actually works. Agreed, so, agreed. Well, yeah. Welcome back to the show, everyone. We're chatting with Steve West from World Magazine around some of the issues of religious liberty, some of the biggest stories from 2021. And Steve, we're going to change the topic to vaccine mandates in just a moment. But this is sort of the foundation of a blog that you're going to be producing and writing in the next couple of weeks, right? That's correct. That's correct. The rough draft, you might say. A rough draft. I love it. Well, we're happy to be your rough draft here on, on Mornings Without Carmen this morning. I think one of the drafts that people are going to be very interested in reading about is your take on the federal authority for vaccine mandates. Tell us what you've seen this last year and maybe what you see in the upcoming year. 
Well, you know, this year is really bookended by that those lockdown rulings that I was mentioning and the vaccine mandate rulings later in the year, because both of them have to do with the limits of governmental powers. You know, Christians have differing opinions about you know, the wisdom of getting the COVID vaccine and, and whether it's ethical. But the lawsuits are really focused on the vaccine mandates themselves, you know, whether the government can order you to get uh, the, get the vaccine. There's been a flurry of cases ruling against the Biden administration mandates uh, lately. You know, for example, the, the OSHA mandate, this is the Occupational Safety and Hazard Administration. It's the one that um, governs a lot of private workplaces. This one would have applied to businesses of 100 or more employees and required all of them to have a, a regime in place where you either had to get the vaccine or you had to get weekly testing, you know, at a business of 100 people. So, and, and wear, you know, protective uh, gear as well. And while it's it's been blocked while a federal appeals court considers all of these consolidated lawsuits that were filed against this. So it's it's kind of blocked at this point. And then the mandate for federal contract contractors, contractors of the federal government, that's been temporarily blocked. The federal health care mandate, which impacts any health care facility receiving Medicare or Medicaid funds, that's virtually all of them, has also been blocked. Uh, and a federal judge has ordered the military to provide extensive details on how it's been dealing with over 16,000 requests for religious exemption from the mandate by service members after evidence that the military has not granted a single exemption but denied many of them uh, citing military preparedness. You know, that really brings up the fact that, you know, we're finding out now the scope of and the test for religious exemption as some employers and government officials are really asking intrusive questions to test the sincerity of religious belief. I mean, um, who, who is a religious believer and, uh, you know, what, what, uh, what is required in order to find that? It doesn't look well for most mandates as a result of all of these court rulings um, shutting them down. You know, I have to mention that, you know, the, uh, in the healthcare industry, um, a, a lot of there's, there's a shortage of workers. And so like up in Maine and New York, which have their own statewide mandates, which, by the way, don't allow any religious exemption for healthcare workers. They have a real shortage of healthcare workers there. And they ordered in uh, the National Guard in order to provide assistance to the hospitals and providing you know, health care workers. And that's true in a lot of rural areas, too, which already struggle to get enough health care workers. So these are serious. Um, th these are serious problems. And, you know, I have to mention, too, that, you know, none of these healthcare workers are saying that we we don't you know, we're, we're not going to be vaccinated, but we're, we're willing to wear all of the protective equipment and do the testing that's required. And so and which is what they did during the pandemic. You know, they didn't have a vaccine, so they wore the, the kind of things they needed to wear and did the testing they needed to do. Uh, and so everybody's trying to be safe, but they have objections, religious objections to the vaccines and uh should be honored. Yeah, I'm a little fuzzy on some of the history of vaccination mandates. I hear little bits and pieces about uh, things like smallpox or, or some of the more common current vaccines that a lot of children have. And, and my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, is that religious exemptions have always been relatively easy to claim in the case of vaccinations. Uh, but do we have any precedent in history that the courts are going to be looking at that say, hey, look, we did vaccine mandates and, and we really did exclude religious exemptions for that specific kind of mandate? Or would this be the first time that that's really under attack? I think this is the first time that they have been uh, as broadly used or broadly claimed as they, they have been. I think, you know, with, with um, smallpox vaccine and some of the, um, our maybe older listeners will remember 
you know, your your family uh, went in mass to the local elementary school or somewhere, and you got your I can't remember what it was a shot for the poli shot for the smallpox, and maybe it was a sugar cube for the polio. But <laughs> one of the things that was different then was, um, you know, you could see the manifestations of that those illnesses uh, pretty pretty readily. You know, a pox on somebody that that yeah. was pretty ready ready to see, and also children were impacted by these kinds of diseases. So I think that led to a situation where people were much more willing to get the vaccine and also much more trusting of government officials. And I think now, unfortunately, there's a there's a there's uh, quite a bit of mistrust of government officials because we've heard so many different things you know, from their mouths. And so, you know, nobody denies that most of these government officials are trying to do um, the best thing in their eyes for the people, but a lot of these powers are uh, not nuanced enough and not not um, allowing enough of these religious exemptions, mm, which are the, important to people. They are important to people. And I think that that last point that you made really bears a, a little bit more digging into is that erosion of trust between the people and the government. And, and that's part of, I think, of a broader sociological phenomenon where there's an erosion of trust in institutions in general. And that would include um, institutions like businesses or churches or any number of institutions. And, and I think we, we've lived for so many generations within the spin where, where an institution thinks that it has to do its best demographic analysis to then spin its marketing ploy to try to convince people to engage in certain kind of behaviors. And I'll at least say this, I work with students week in and week out, Steve, and they're so weary of the spin. They're so weary of institutions trying to persuade them through marketing means and psychological breakdowns and demographic analysis that they just sort of hold up their hand and say, no, thank you. I'm done with that. And I, is there a way to even restore any kind of trust between institutions and the people? That is, that's a really difficult question. As you know, restoring trust takes, takes time, you know, and it's a, like you say, a broad-based phenomena that you have to come at from different angles. And it's something you can't, you can't market to do that either. And so we're really set up to market and try to persuade people in that way. And it really takes a lot of uh, a lot of one-on-one, a lot of uh, people beginning to trust people again uh, through one-on-one contact. I think just if, if you think about a family where trust is broken down between a husband and wife, same kind of thing. It takes time uh, for that to happen, and so I don't I don't know all the ways in which that has to happen, but I know it has to involve a lot of uh, one-on-one contact with people. Mm-hmm. Chatting with Steve West from World. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and just a lot of frankness and a lot of honesty mm-hmm. and transparency on the part of public officials that uh, particularly health officials that come out and, and tell us things, you know, they need to, they need to be careful what they say. They need to be, um, say, don't, don't say more than they should say, and they need to stick to you know what they actually know. And that would help a lot. But I think what you just said, Steve, about that uh, idea of transparency uh, why do we struggle with that so much when we're in institutional power or when, when, there's, when there, you're in a business or a church or whatever it is? Why, why is it so hard to just simply be yourself and, and stop trying to spin everybody with your little marketing choices? I think, it's a, I think it comes down to pride like a lot of things. And so if you're transparent, you, you fear that you'll be taken advantage of mm. and looked down upon or you know, you want, you know, somebody will use that against you. And so you're trying to, you know, people are used to projecting an image through Facebook or Twitter or whatever social media accounts. You know, there's a, you, you curate uh, your image on those uh, platforms and people are used to that. And so, you know, that's what they feel like is happening. Uh, and they feel like if I let down my guard, which is just pride, 
to let down my guard and actually be who I am and be transparent, then I'll be, I'll be taken advantage of or mm. uh, I'll suffer from that. Yeah, why stuff. Uh, talking with Steve West from World Magazine. Steve, we've got to leave it here, but uh, we've got a few other topics that we weren't able to get to this morning. However, for the people listening this morning, they can catch the blog as it comes out uh, with some of the other ones you're talking about with faith-based foster and adoption agencies, campus student, Christian groups and leadership. There, there's a number of topics. Where can they find your work when it goes live? Yeah, they can just go to wng.org, O-R-G, and then they can look for the roundups and look for liberties, and they'll see it there. In fact, this year-end roundup that I do is going to be published on December 28th, so it'll be something to look to after Christmas. Definitely. Well, we'll highlight that in future shows as well. Thanks again, Steve, for joining us, and have a very, very Merry Christmas. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas. We'll take a short break uh, for some bottom-of-the-hour news in a, in a couple of minutes. And uh, when we come back in the second half of Hour 1 of Mornings with Carmen, we'll be joined by one of our weekly favorites or bi-weekly favorites, Chris Martin. We'll talk a little bit about the fact that your online life is actually your real life. So, Paul, I think actually this time warrants a quick weather update, not just here in the Midwest where we're located, but around the country. I see that there's some record temperatures happening in the south, uh, Mm -hmm. places like Houston and Memphis. And I don't know my meteorology all that well, but my understanding is is that when really hot temperatures meet really cold temperatures, you get a big mess. It seems to get a big mess across the south. So there is tornado watches and warnings across the south. And where we're located here in the Midwest, specifically Minneapolis, St. Paul, a lot of listeners in Wisconsin, Iowa as well, sounds like there's a Pretty big snowstorm coming this afternoon. Well, potentially. I, I always get a little skeptical. You are. You are you are the weather cynic like, around here. I hear all these big, you know, I've been in Minnesota long enough. Oh, big storm coming. <laughs> get a couple of inches. Yay. But, okay, we'll see what happens Indeed. at this point. Uh, yeah, Sioux Falls, um, looking at Madison, and the Twin Cities getting hit pretty hard. Meanwhile, if you go all the way to Hartford tomorrow, they're looking at a high close to 60 and oh, rain. Well, yeah. after the show, then, I am going to start driving straight out to Hartford because I'd love to yeah. be with part of the Faith Radio family out there in that kind of weather instead of what we got. I'm sure Jim will have a you know extra room for you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, Jim, cue up the sofa. <laughs> That's great. Well, we'll uh, step away again for just a minute. When we come back, Chris Martin will join us. We're going to talk a little bit about how your online life is your real life and also, too, about this sort of phenomenon of digital nostalgia. Some moms and dads feel like complete failures. What happened to those innocent days when the kids were compliant and fun to be around? Today, the teens are angry and messing up big time. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. There's a great story in the 16th chapter of Acts where Paul and Silas, after being beaten and thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, were actually singing praise songs. At midnight, at the darkest moment, they chose to worship God. Paul and Silas can model something profound for the mom and dad who feels trapped and disheartened. Though your circumstances are hard and confusing, it's the praise and worship at midnight that brings everything into focus. My friend, even in your darkest moments, Don't lose heart. God is in control. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store.
Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. This is the Mornings Without Carmen version. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today and for part of next week and delighted to be joined by good friend of the show, Chris Martin, who talks a lot about social media, next gen, how to be safe online, any topics within that realm. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm doing well. It's great to be with you again. Great to hear your voice and love this first article that we're going to talk about. It's it's sort of mind-blowing to me, Chris, that maybe your online life is your real life because I would have thought that as soon as I shut that computer, it's all over. And 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 I'm self-absorbed enough to believe that if I'm not actually present, nothing's actually happening. So so I, I this is scandalous to me, Chris, that if I shut it all down, I'm still out there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, you're not alone if you do, if you feel that way. Um, I've learned, you know, I've, I've written about the social internet and really the internet in general a lot over the years. And I think, um, it's always been tempting and a theme that's always come up. It's always been tempting for people to think of the, uh, what they do on the internet and, and their online life as different from their offline life. Uh, and I don't mean this in like a shady, like, you know, online, they're, a different and they're like they're living a double life though that's i'm sure that's happening i know that's happening all over the place but that's not i don't mean something as serious as that um and i don't even mean something as sort of trite and common as you know jesus sees your search history even after you delete it kind of a thing like yeah that's true uh, but i think that message is is has been pretty well hammered over the years i think what what's been most interesting to me as i've been talking to a bunch of pastors i'm working on i have a book coming out in february um, but I have a. I'm working on a second book for the next for February of 23. That's about how pastors can lead their congregations through this age um, when when pastors maybe have less authority and less gravitas as maybe they did 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and because of I'm writing this book, I'm talking to a bunch of pastors because I'm not one. Um, and so I've been talking to about a dozen pastors in the last two or three months. And a, a recurring theme that I've heard from them is that their people in their churches act like what they do online uh, does not affect who they are offline. One pastor in particular uh, that I was speaking with just last week told me a story about a woman who uh, posted on Facebook that she really uh, was just having a really bad day, was really discouraged, was kind of giving vague details about what it was. She wasn't getting into the specifics, but she was making it clear. In fact, I think explicitly asking for encouragement uh, from from people on Facebook. And when a church member uh, who is in leadership at the church, like a lay leader, told the uh, church staff about this, said, hey, you know, we got this church member. She posted on Facebook. She's really having a rough day, really discouraged. Sounds like she could use some help. Can we reach out to her, you know, and, and see what she needs? The pastor said, yeah, let's do it. So the, the church staff kind of reached out to her and said, hey, what can we do uh, to help you? Like, you know, do you need anything? And the church member was offended um, and was put off by this act of the church staff and actually left the church. Mm. And when I heard that, um, I actually talked to a couple other pastors about the phenomenon, and, and they said they've heard and seen the same. And what what's interesting is it's not because the church staff did anything wrong or, or they it's not like they were calling out sin that they saw. It's not like they saw this church member acting foolish online and were calling her out. Mm -hmm. They saw her asking for help and said, hey, hey, we're here. How can we help? We're, we you know, we live just right down the street from you. We're your church community. And what the woman said was my my online life is private. Um, what you you got you guys shouldn't care about what I'm doing on on Facebook. 
And so she she felt kind of like seen and kind of vulnerable. Um, and and what I've gathered from other pastors, even since I published this piece last Tuesday, this past Tuesday, um, is that they that plenty of people have experienced similar circumstances. So I think what what we need to realize is, you know, a lot of times we say like, well, that happens on the internet, but in real life, like my real life. And I think I, I've caught myself saying that, you know, like, oh, I have this friend on the internet, but my real life friends are more important. Well, Mm -hmm. what the people we connect with on the internet are real. Those connections we make are real. It's no less real. It's just, it's definitely different. And so I think we should start to see what we do online as much more real or at least as real as as what we do offline. Yeah, I think that's just such an interesting dynamic, Chris. Is, is there a sense in which we sometimes get stuck thinking that the internet, if we're going to post some things, is meant to be more of a one-way communication? People perceive it that way and say, hey, whatever I post out there, I'm, I'm not inviting comments. I'm not inviting feedback. I don't want people to necessarily act on any of this. I just want to, to get my material or my thoughts or my photos or my life out there a little bit. But but there is that sort of tacit understanding that if you put yourself out there, you're probably going to get some feedback and maybe people just simply need to be equipped to realize that. Yeah, I think there's this sense when you post on the Internet, you're shouting into the void and that can feel um, freeing or discouraging mm-hmm. for a writer like me who, you know, likes to get feedback. It can be discouraging to feel like you're shouting into the void because like it's most encouraging to me when I get a response to one of the pieces that I wrote and said, Hey, this was really helpful. It's like, wow, I shouted into the void and somebody shouted back. That's amazing. But I think maybe for the woman that we just described or for a lot of people posting online and shouting into the void is just kind of therapeutic mm. in, in, in the action in and of itself. And then when the void shouts back, they're a little bit startled, like, Whoa, I was, I didn't mean for anyone to hear what I just said. I was just shouting into the void. And so, yeah, I think, I think there is a sense in which, um, we feel like, especially if we cultivate a more anonymous presence, we, we feel like what we do online should maybe just kind of be kept apart from what we do offline. And, and, um, I, I think, it just for a handful of reasons, we should realize that that what we do online is very real. Yeah, I know. Chris, are there certain dimensions of online life, though, that you can have a legitimate objection to in terms of your privacy being invaded? I think about yesterday I was in class with my students and they were, they were just kind of cluing me in as part of an informal conversation about how available my life actually is online in ways that I didn't understand. <clears throat> and I invited him to just do it. And within about three minutes, they had my middle name, they had my home address, and my phone was ringing because they had my phone number as well. So I I didn't put any of that out there. That was not instigated by me, but they had a gazillion websites where they could find out all this information about me. Oh, yeah. We should all expect to have some measure of privacy on the Internet. Um, But what I think and I've talked about this on the show before and I write about it quite a bit. Um, Unfortunately, this when I write about this, it does feel a bit like shouting into the void. Um, When we use products on the Internet uh, that don't cost anything, we don't realize that what we're actually paying for what we're actually paying with is the data you just described. Um, So what I often say is that you um, you have no expectation of privacy on the internet, even if maybe you, you should be able to have some expectation of privacy. So, um, all that, you know, people love to exercise their expressive individualism on Facebook, um, and, and talk about their friends and family and job and things like that. But then when that information somehow gets leaked to an advertiser or perhaps a more malicious actor, 
um, they kind of throw their hands up and say, wait, how do they get this information? That's not right. And it's like, well, you trusted Facebook with it, which was your first mistake. And so we we really need to be careful. We need to realize that with a lot of these free online platforms, uh, with all if they're free, uh, your data is the product and your data is your cost of entry. And so, yeah, we definitely have we have we should be able to expect some measure of privacy. But frankly, I think most people are willing to give up their personal data so that they can tell everyone what's going on in their lives, which I think is a sad tragedy of our of our state. But this is the topic when I talk with people, it really feels like I'm talking to a brick wall. Um, it's the hardest one to get through. You know, you can talk about how social media uh, hurt like makes anxiety more prevalent or, or all other kinds of things and people will listen. But when you try to get people to understand that giving up your data is not a good idea Usually they say things like, well, I have nothing to hide. Well, yeah, you don't have nothing, anything to hide. You're not, you're not trying to be shady, but you, you still close the door when you go to the bathroom. Like, like you still <laughs> want some measure, you still want some measure of privacy. Um, and so I think, yeah, that we should have an expectation of that and we should have higher expectations and standards for these platforms that we use. And hopefully, you know, hopefully that can happen. Unfortunately, I don't know how that happens outside of government regulation, just because we can't trust these companies to grade their own homework, frankly, and 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 put these regulations in themselves. But, uh, but yeah, I think I think we should be concerned about that and aware of that. I'm talking with Chris Martin this morning, who writes the Terms of Service blog. He's also an editor for Moody Press, a social media consultant. And Chris, when we come back from a short break, let's stay in that same topic about the idea of government regulation and what they know and what they don't know and, and how we need to press into that because there's been this ongoing conversation happening about what Instagram people have known in terms of internal data and its impact on young people. And, and I would love your take on that next year on Mornings Without Carmen. going to run the risk of losing all credibility during the Christmas season because every holiday song, every Christmas carol that you play, I'm going to probably just simply respond with, that one's my favorite. I, I don't know what to do. I like You, you play Oh Come All You Faithful and I start just in, in a puddly mess of tears. It's just one of my favorite songs. It's my job. It's it is. My job. Yeah, thanks for that job. Welcome back to the show. It's about 11 minutes before the top of the hour here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today and for some of next week. As Carmen is away, we're talking with Chris Martin, who's an expert within the realm of social media and, and and the way we use the internet and how we can be private or public and just the impact that it has on our life. And, and one of the ongoing stories this year, Chris, that I've paid quite a bit of attention to is the internal data that companies like Facebook and Instagram or YouTube, Google, Microsoft, what they have and what they know in terms of their own research and the impact it has on their users. And and even the ethics then of being public with that research or, or somehow having some regulation around that research. Uh, what are we seeing in some more recent Instagram hearings where insta the, the, the people who run Instagram are getting pressed pretty hard on what they've known in terms of its impact on young people. Yeah, so Adam Masseri, who is the head of Instagram these days, he's been a longtime uh, Facebook or, or Meta uh, employee. Uh, he's the head of Instagram these days, and he um, made his trek up to Capitol Hill um, in his first time ever going there for, or for to testify on behalf of Instagram uh, about what they know regarding uh how the app impacts young children and teens. As I'm sure uh, some of the listeners here know, the Facebook papers released back in October uh, this fall about um, it detailing all of the ways that Facebook, uh, uh, really it's tens of thousands of documents from internal communications at Facebook. The most interesting bits coming from those documents were how the platform, how the company uh, is aware of many of the ways in which 
Facebook and Instagram are affecting their users uh, often more for negative than positive, and they're not doing anything about it. Um, so Mosseri testified before Congress. We learned a few things, but really it was, in my opinion, just more interesting that he himself, uh, rather than a lawyer, was there uh, testifying and, and explaining what the what the platform was trying to do to help uh, combat anxiety among children or, or young people uh, and, and kind of answering for a lot of the data and information that came from the Facebook papers. Um, at one point recently, Facebook, Facebook, Instagram was planning an Instagram kids app, um, which was met with a lot of, uh, cause you have to be 13 years old to start an Instagram account. Now, naturally a lot of kids under the age of 13 are starting Instagram accounts and just lying about their age. I mean, that's a, that's no high crime. That's a story as old as the internet. Um, but the uh, what's interesting is that app was really panned by the public, uh, mm. and Instagram has since tried to say, "Well, we're doing that because we think that the kids app could be safer for kids, could be safer for kids." And and Masseri did not commit uh, in this hearing to never pursuing an Instagram for kids app for that reason. He said that you know we we think it's it would be better for kids if there was an Instagram for kids app rather than having kids on the main app lying about their age. And I understand the logic to some extent. However, in the same for the same reason that, you know, there were there were laws passed, regulations passed in the 90s, I think it was, to restrict advertising to children on television in the in the morning cartoon era. Uh, I think we should be really concerned about um, what Instagram for kids could look like from an advertising perspective uh, and and really what Instagram as a whole looks like from an advertising perspective. And so I think, like I said in the last segment before we went to break, when you use these free apps, you need to recognize and when you, or when your kids or your grandkids, if you're listening here and you have kids or grandkids, when you're using these free apps, unless you turn on all of the restrictive, the, the most strict data gathering features that they have, which there are features to restrict how much data they can gather. Like you don't have to turn on location services for Instagram. Um, you don't have to give them other information about yourself. However, everything you post, every bit of personal expression is categorized and cataloged by Instagram um, because they can, they have, they have artificial intelligence that can take an image and turn it into text and to communicate to their platform like what that image is of so a dog or a minivan or a house or a baby um, and so you you can you just should just be aware that that these platforms are really fronts for personal expression and uh, for you and me to express ourselves and connect with other people but really they don't make their money from that they make their money from taking all of the data that that personal expression creates and selling it to advertisers to run ads in the most specific way possible. So if an ad is run on this radio program um, for a new book, a new Advent book from, hey, Moody Publishers, my publisher, if we ran an ad on this program, we would say, well, we, we have a general idea of who listens to Faith Radio, and they might be interested in this new Advent book. But if I went to Facebook and gave them 50 bucks and said, give me all of the people who are interested in this author who wrote this Advent book, then that's going to be, no offense to you guys, a much more valuable advertisement for me because I know that I can target those 80,000 people on Facebook who I who Facebook has identified as fans of that author. And so that's how Facebook makes their money is huge companies are spending billions of dollars a year 
uh, billions of dollars a quarter running ads like that on Facebook because it's hyper-targeted, because we show that we're a fan of an author or a movie or a musician because of, hey, we posted we're listening to this new album or we posted we just went to this new movie. Um, and Facebook and Instagram categorize and catalog that information and then we receive ads as a result. So we should just be aware of all of that. And I think we should be concerned, uh, though some people disagree with me. Uh, and so anyway, that's that's what I would say. Mm. Chris, we just have about a minute left or so. But as you're talking, I'm thinking about just the complexity of this social situation. And when you look back throughout history, the church is always having to evolve and change while staying historically rooted within the kingdom to, to meet the different things that are happening sociologically. And, and 10, 15 years ago, we didn't have to ask all these questions about how are we safe online? What do we do with our kids? What is the impact? It just simply wasn't part of society. So for the parents and, and grandparents that are part uh, of the Faith Radio family wondering what they can do with their kids and grandkids, is there just a way to get started to educate themselves on what's all happening if they feel overwhelmed by this? Yeah, man, I would I would go to places like um, the Gospel Coalition is publishing some great resources on this. Um, find books. Um, there's there's a great book by Arlene Pellicane on this. Um Gary Chapman, I think, has a book on this. So f- find resources, find print books that, though they may be a bit outdated in the in the uh, platforms that they're describing, I think they can provide principles um, that would be helpful for uh, for just being aware of what's going on and, and how to how to navigate it as a believer moving forward. Uh, great stuff as always, Chris. Thanks so much for the work that you do right at the ground level, ground zero of so many of these tricky conversations and then bringing it back to all of us with accessibility and, and some empowerment because it can be just a really difficult situation and conversation to have. Have a great rest of the day and Merry Christmas. Chris, it's always great to hear your voice. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you guys. We'll take a short break and wrap up hour one of Mornings Without Carmen here on the 10th of December and preview what's coming up next with Adam Holtz in hour two. Such helpful conversations, people that Carmen has in uh, week in and week out where we can talk about some of the relevant news headlines and topics of the day, bring the mind of Christ, as she would say, to bear into these different situations. Chris, so helpful talking about uh, social media and how we can engage in a much more proactive way to, to be protective of our of our young people, to be shepherding of them as well. If you missed any of our one of Mornings with Carmen, you can head back to MyFaithRadio.com. Catch the podcast. We talked with Steve West from World Magazine in the first part of the hour about uh, so many of the conversations and, and religious liberties that have happened in this last year and what to expect for next year. And, of course, again, into the social media conversation with Chris Martin. When we come back in just a couple minutes for Hour 2, we'll be joined by Friday guest Adam Holtz, and we're going to talk about some of the best Christmas movies of all time. I don't know what qualifies, what the criteria is for the best Christmas movies, but he's got a top 10 list, and we'd uh, invite you to join us as part of your input on that. So stay with us here for Morning uh, Mornings with Carmen. Hour 2 is up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.